Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit DesenioDaily.com. We hope you enjoy the programme. Welcome to Reuse. As you've probably guessed from the sort of slightly punning title, of which I am disproportionately proud, today we're going to speak about usage in design and sort of function and some of the issues around that. And we're also going to be looking at uh, reuse um, and how those two may be interconnect. Uh, I'm really delighted to be joined by Michael Marriott and Greg Bookbinder from Emico. Just for a kind of very short introduction, um, Greg is showing the one-inch collection uh, by Emico designed by Jasper Morrison, uh, which is made from 90% industrial waste material. Um, so it's 75% waste polypropylene and 15% waste wood fibre. Uh, so it's a really fascinating design, sort of working out how industry can use its byproducts and how those can be transformed into into piece of value. Um, Michael is here in a little bit of a dual role. Uh, so at the moment at Stanley Picker Gallery, he's showing uh, You Say Volvo, I Say Potato, uh, it's an amazing title, uh, and it will be more fun for Michael to tell you what that project is. Um, it's a really sort of interesting way of exploring uh, some production techniques and also looking at usage a little bit and, and ways usage can change over time. And then also, um, Michael has a show downstairs here. Uh, it's a museum of brushes, which have some sort of lightly fictionalized usages, I would say. So first of all, Michael, do you want to set out the You Say Volvo, I Say Potato project? Okay, yeah, um, so You Say Volvo, I Say Potato came about as part of a fellowship from the Stanley Picker Gallery um, in Kingston. It's a sort of sister organisation of Kingston University or Kingston School of Art. And um, the idea is really that you get to investigate something you wouldn't normally have the chance to do in your normal day-to-day practice. Uh, and you apply with a proposal. My proposal was to do with investigating methods of printing, alternative methods of printing on plywood. And it was based on the fact that I've used lots of plywood in my life. I love plywood. I think it's an amazing material. And and I love colour and print on plywood, and I've often done that. But one of the sort of things that I struggle with sometimes is, is, is the ne- necessity to have to prepare artwork and then get pieces of plywood trucked around London to screen printers, ideally, or less ideally to digital printers that can do amazing, perfect things, but it's sort of so perfect, it's sort of dead, and it totally kind of kills the surface of the wood. So part of my want was to try and find a way of printing that I could control myself that wasn't reliant on subcontracting to someone where you lose control, but also where I could do something that was the, the reference one of the references I made in my proposal was that it should be something more akin to potato printing, which is where the potato in the title comes from. Um anyway I got I got the uh the uh fellowship grant, which was great. And then shortly after that, well, I'd been working on a project with a, a curator in a school in North London who I'd known for many years and her car was was a yellow Volvo estate. And um yeah, the gearbox had gone. They'd been driving it for 10 or 15 years, and the gearbox had gone, the front drive train all needed replacing, and it was her Volvo garage just told her that you can't spend any more money on this. It's, it's just crazy. And So she was slowly coming to terms with having to let it go. And so I just thought, you know what? I think this is the missing link that I need for my research. I, can, I know enough about cars that 
I can take that apart and find things that I can use as potatoes and there'll be unlike the external skin of the car there'll be these beautiful engineered components that will make perfect printing plates or potatoes so I, I suppose at the core of the project there's a desire to reappropriate elements of that Volvo and put them towards a new use and as you say there was an emotional resonance there and seeing what could be created from that. And that's very much within a gallery context this project has been developed for. It's a commission, obviously, for that. I mean, Greg, you're, you're involved in very different projects and in, and in an industrial context, but again, a big part of Emiko's work over the past few years, and particularly with the One Inch, has been, again, taking those ideas of something which maybe seems to be dead or waste and seeing how that can be transformed into a meaningful piece of design. So maybe you could give us a little bit of an introduction and then we can begin comparing and contrasting. Well, Emiko began in, after World War II, or at World War II, making chairs for uh, Navy ships and submarines, purpose-built. So the chair was so good, it was so strong, it became standard issue for all warships, battleships, aircraft carriers, submarines, everything. So after the Cold War ended, and Emico had one customer, and one customer was the government, and one chair, the, the Navy chair, sales kind of went down and down and down until there were really no sales left. And I was fortunate to be able to have the challenge to be able to revive it. And so over the years, what I have pa- been passionate about is um, it's a chair made with 80% recycled material, tested the last 150 years. I really am passionate about the environment. So everything we do, we make with waste materials. So that's the journey. And this one-inch collection, like this chair, is a chair made with 90% waste material. Maybe we can talk a little bit about where that impulse for both of you comes from to reuse material in that way. I mean, Greg, you set out there's clearly... Um, environmental reasons for that there are good reasons as to why we ought to be reusing material but I know Michael you in particular also feel there are other reasons that maybe there's a sense of sort of an aesthetic force or, or, or a rightness or something that comes out through reusing material so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit your thinking around that why is it interesting as a design project to be engaged in that kind of act okay now I'm going to uh something because when you sent the sort of pricey of the notes of what we we're going to talk about I was finishing my holiday reading which was a book uh, by Jonathan Meads and there's a great little bit where he's talking about there's a small town out on the sort of Essex Kent estuary that's um, built temporarily someone will know the name of it here and it's kind of unplanned outside of planning consent and then people are allowed to do what they want and it's a bit of a wild west definitely in terms of planning but I think there is an awful lot of um, humanistic wit and um, intelligence in, in, in that sort of slightly make do and mend thing and there's a, a sort of delight in the sort of humanity of it in the sort of resourcefulness of um, you know making a shack from found materials, whatever. And, and often those buildings have a, a permanence, even though literally they don't, but aesthetically they do, that all sorts of modern buildings that are designed don't have. Does it change the way in which an audience reads a design, knowing it has that sort of element of reuse or 
make to amend and shape the way you see it. So, for instance, sometimes that's very obvious. Some designs are incredibly improvised and you kind of can't help but know that. But say, Greg, something like this chair, I mean, unless you're told the story, you wouldn't necessarily know it's made from a waste product. But So how, how does that kind of element of reuse shape how we read design? How does it shape our relationship to it? Well, I, I don't know if it depends on who the user is. And um, ironically enough, uh, I don't know that very many people actually care that what the material is. We're hoping we can inspire people to use materials in their, in their life. And, you know, uh, Alev, uh, who she's president of Emico, one day she said, you know, working at Emico, I take shorter showers and I turn off my lights. I mean, we're hoping that everything we do inspires people in many different ways than just buying a chair that's, that's of, you know, waste materials. Michael, how, do, how in your experience does it, does it shape the way people interact with the objects you create? I think it sort of tends to have a sort of detrimental effect in a way, and I think that a lot of what I do is kind of utilitarian. And I think there's a sort of sense in the lay public's idea of objects that um, utilitarian things are of less value. They're something that you, you put in your garage you know, you put shelves that are just plain plywood or, or pine or ash or, you know, they're, they're just, just lumps of wood, planks of wood or sheets of plywood. Uh, and, you know, there's a sort of sense that design and value is about a sort of slickness and an, an added layer of a veneer of glossy sumptuousness. Uh, and I think a lot of it just, just feels like marketing and mm, obsolete fashion instead of um, urgency and soul and spirit and longevity. I'd like to move a little bit more now towards usage uh, and understanding that. I mean, there's quite a dominant discourse within design or a tendency, I think, to evaluate things in terms of functionalism. What's the function of an object and its success is how well it performs that. I know there's, there's quite a big movement uh, among some people who find that a very narrow perspective on an object i wonder what if you could speculate a as, as to what the appeal of that kind of functionalist critique why is it something which seems to come up so often and 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 whether it is too narrow whether it does limit our sort of appreciation of objects yeah i think it's a difficult thing to um put into a box or a set of words and and actually say but you know like We've been talking a lot about colour with the Volvo project and that, that thing of primrose yellow and, and what that does to this slightly nondescript car. But it, it's like you see that driving along the road when there's every other car is a different shade of silver and it's like the sun's come out. So, you know, there's things like colour and form. They, they, they're incredibly powerful things that, you know, it's, it's, it is a designer's job to, to deal with those and... Um, place them in the right situation so it's it's a it's an enormous part of it it's not just functionalism in in terms of those strict rules that were set up 100 years ago i think when you make something so well when you make something torpedo proof a guy like terence conran finds it and he puts it in his restaurants like bluebird or quaglinos and you know it, it it takes on a new life with you know someone that sees other values and other purposes and they use it indoors or outdoors it, and I think the key to functionalism is making a product just really well so that y 
that it ends up being used in all kinds of other applications that you never even thought of when you began the, the journey. So a hospital might be using them inside showers because it can hold up. Or uh, someone might be using it at a ski lodge outdoors because they'll hold up. Uh, and the restaurants, they could just hose the chairs off. So it's, functionalism is, I think it's, it's essential, but it's essential only if the product will hold up. How do you kind of design with that in mind that the idea of a single user is probably a little bit of a myth? People interact with objects in a very different way. So I wonder how when you approach a design, are there any methodologies to building in that flexibility, to building in this idea that this is an object which people can connect to in any number of ways, which has that kind of enduring quality perhaps? I don't know. It's kind of what I try to do in life, but I don't know how to explain it. But I think objects need to sort of delight human beings to some extent. They need to be kind of humanistic. And, you know, I think if something's just straightforwardly functional, it, it doesn't feel like something you want to sit on or hold in your hand. They need to be softened. You know, they need radiuses on the corners. You know, they need yellow sometimes. They need these other things that are, are less easy to define. So how powerful are those stories we tell around an object in terms of determining its success? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, like you're saying, Michael, a product has to have really beautiful details. People have to love it. And there has to be something that people want to have and own and keep. Now, uh, for example, we did a project with uh, Coca-Cola. We had a joint venture. And we took the Coca-Cola plastic bottles and we upcycle and made chairs. Okay, it's no big deal. But when you start to tell people the story behind it, it took four years working with scientists and engineers and chemists to develop this material, to make the material structurally sound so we could produce a product that would hold up. And that story behind what it is, and then to be able to tell people, oh, and by the way, we've kept 30 million bottles out of the landfill so far. And, oh, by the way, We've consulted with Timberland, we've consulted with Adidas, we've consulted with other companies and shared this information, this material that we've developed, so that they can also use it and keep plastic out of the landfills. So that story is essential to making this chair special. Otherwise, it's just a Navy chair. I mean, we're working with, like, Jasper, and Jasper is focused on just doing the very best chair he can, and then it goes out into the marketplace. So we spend, you know, say, oh, Jasper, this chair needs to stack. It needs to, you know, and all these things. And then you walk into uh, a location where it's a restaurant, and rather than stacking it, they put it on top of the tables. So there's this, these chairs have a life of their own, and as they start to, you know, go out in the world, then the stories start to develop, and it, it makes it fun. I think it's maybe also worth saying, though, that it's so tempting to always assume there's like a single narrative around a project that's defining, whereas you get all sorts of competing narratives. As a journal, we did a project a few years back where we contacted designers to let us know of surprising uses they discovered their products had been put to after they'd been released and then we gave them over to a fiction writer to sort of write that up and it's kind of amazing like the little counter narratives which come up it, it turns out pretty much any design can be put to fairly perverted use which was a strange quirk but it's really interesting you get those little interweaving stories that emerge in which you know they're maybe not the official narrative but they're a narrative and it all 
piles in and kind of knits together. You've been listening to a Desenia podcast. For more podcasts, visit desenyadaily.com.